Hello and welcome to the PE Insights podcast, conversations about PE with me, your host, Nathan Walker. Uh, I'm really excited today to introduce our guest, Dr. Gary Standinger. Uh, Standinger, is that right? Correct, yeah. Don't want to offend you by saying your name wrong at the start <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> um, Gary's a teaching fellow in physical education at the University of Edinburgh um, with 12 years of uh, experience of teaching PE at a secondary academy in southwest England. And he's recently completed his doctoral thesis, congratulations, Gary, uh, achieving mastery and involved grounded theory of lead learners' views on feedback and assessment. He's done this uh, thesis through Loughborough University. Gary's research interests span youth voice, feedback literacy, and student agency, uh, with a particular focus in secondary education. So get ready for an insightful conversation. And Gary, welcome to the PE Insights. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for having me this morning. Absolutely. Yeah, pleased, pleased to have you on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So kick us off with telling us a little bit about your educational journey so far. Yeah, like, like many aspiring PE teachers and coaches, I, I love primary and in particular secondary school PE at Newquay Ferris. A big shout out, if I may, Nathan, to Newquay Ferris School in Cornwall. And my PE yeah. teachers, Mr. Higginson, Mr. Croker, Mr. Barker, Mr. Booth, Mr. Johnson and Mrs. Pierce, who inspired and quietly encouraged me throughout my time in secondary and sixth form. So a huge thank you to all of them. Um, and I wouldn't be where I am today without you know, their guidance and support at the beginning of this journey. I studied GCSE followed by A-level PE before heading to the University of Gloucestershire to study sport and exercise science. And it was at Cheltenham Gloucester that my passion for teaching and research began. Uh, I enjoyed studying anatomy and physiology, biomechanics, environmental physiology, to name a few. But it was my real interest in diet nutrition that eventually led to writing my undergrad dissertation, which investigated whether an active teenager, which was my younger sister, Vicky, uh, eating a gluten-free diet um, with celiac disease gets enough calories per day. It was a great introduction to research and academic writing, although I reread it a few years ago now, Nathan, and while I was clearing up my flat and said to myself, did I really write that? Um, <laughs> but uh, it was a good learning process. And once I graduated, I yeah. worked as a director of sport at Camp Coleman in Cleveland, Georgia, the state just above Florida, in the summer of 2009. Uh, and it was while I was working with children and young people, ranging from three-year-olds to 18-year-olds at this camp, that I realized I wanted to become a PE teacher in the future. So after some post-camp traveling, I returned to England and I worked as a teaching assistant slash cover supervisor at a secondary school in Cornwall for a couple of years, uh, predominantly working with year seven to year 11 students with special educational needs and disabilities, and in the process gains valuable teaching and learning experience for observing great teachers across the school. I also got an opportunity to work with the PE department, for example, helping with lunchtime and after school extracurricular activities, coaching football, coaching athletics, whilst doing a range of sport awards and qualifications in my free time, like gymnastics, swimming, rugby, football, to name a few, in preparation for my PGCE year and beyond. So following my time at this school, I started my PGC MP at Loughborough University, and that was in September 2011. 
And after surviving that year, and the key word there is survival, um, I got my first <laughs> teaching position at a school in Somerset, which is ideal because it was only a few hours away from where I grew up in Newquay, um, where I went on to teach. Uh, as you mentioned a minute ago, for the past 11 years, finishing in July of this year. And to tell the truth, many ups and downs, but overall, I enjoyed my time at the school, working with hardworking, enthusiastic colleagues to improve teaching and learning across core and academic PE, writing and often rewriting Key Stage 3, Key Stage 4 programmes of study, uh, and developing our Young Leaders programme, which has flourished in recent years. Hmm. Um, so, so while working as a full-time PE teacher at the school, I completed my master's degree in education in 2014, and that focused on key stage three gifted and talented views and experiences of PE, uh, quickly followed by a PhD, which I completed in November of last year, uh, which leads me to where I am right now, Nathan. Um, so last month I made the step up as you did yourself from secondary to higher education to begin the next stage of my career in academia yeah. at the University of Edinburgh, uh, where I'm currently working with undergraduate students on the MA Physical Education Degree Programme at Moray House School of Education and Sport. Uh, it's been a great experience. I've loved every second of it so far, and um, it's very different from life as a secondary PE teacher, as you yeah, can testify. Yeah, that's maybe a conversation for a different day that we can have about that transition from uh, from mainstream physical education to higher education. Um, but vast experience, Gary, and um, I'm sure all of your insights today are going to be uh, really appreciated by the listeners. So let's start with a key question that everyone's going to be asked on this podcast. Why is physical education important to you? That's a great question, Nathan. <laughs> for me, physical education can make a significant contribution to children and young people's learning by providing them with the skills and qualities so they can fully engage in a range of recreational and or competitive physical activities as part of a lifelong and life-wide journey. I believe PE mm. is a subject that develops important and ongoing fundamental movement skills, develops tactical awareness, develops important rules and regulations from your fun games to your more structured uh, sporting activities, as well as probably most importantly to me anyway, Nathan, engaging young children and young people's personal development. Yeah. And in particular, their personal learning and thinking skills. So they can be, for example, independent thinkers and team workers within PE, school and beyond. I believe we, we as a community of teachers work tirelessly to work, you know, to help children and young people be physically literate, to, for instance, develop their knowledge and understanding, to maintain a healthy, active lifestyle that incorporates positive mental health and well-being. There is, in fact, fantastic work going on at this very moment by Shirley Gray, Rachel Sanford, Ollie Hooper and colleagues at Edinburgh, Loughborough and Cardiff universities in scoping the potential of PE as a core subject, which, which it should be. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, PE has strong cross-curricular links across most schools. Uh, it's a subject that should get greater recognition than it currently does, in my opinion. Uh, and having now retired from competitive running after my varicose vein surgery on both my legs after COVID, um, I enjoy and okay. will continue to lead and promote a healthy, active lifestyle. And I have physical education to thank for that. 
also you know we are in fortunate positions as teachers to teach every young child and young you know young person why physical education is important so PE has been and always will be important to me excellent yeah thank you for that I'm really pleasing to hear you talk about um ongoing studies and physical literacy and it's quite um apt considering the the consensus that happened um only a couple of days ago now with physical literacy being our relationships with movement and physical activity throughout life I think that summary in itself is um it's a really good sort of uh foundation to build upon and and almost kind of centers our our values as PE teachers and whatever we do on top of that um you know it is really really important but if that is our building blocks then that's a good place to start absolutely Um, so obviously you've you've come on to the the pod today and this is the section where we we hand it over to you as the guest to to share something that you're you're interested in or you're passionate about so what would you like to discuss today gary I think uh, two things really. Uh, first thing, just share my my teaching practice and um, how I teach, basically, and then move on to my my PhD research and share uh, best practice and recommendations. Um, so I'll split it into two Excellent. parts today, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'll start off with with in terms of teaching physical education, and and since the time I started my PGC at Loughborough. I've had a keen interest in models-based practices like teaching games for understanding, tactical games, sport education. Influenced by uh, influenced by Dr. Ash Casey, I, I Absolutely, imagine. Absolutely, yes. Um, yeah. Cooperative learning, to name a few. Uh, and I use that to plan and teach well-structured lessons that are highly differentiated, inclusive, adapted and modified, and most importantly, student-led. Hmm. which also, you know, I consider young people's diverse and complex needs as part of that structuring of those of those lessons. If I'm honest, I consider myself quite a lazy teacher in the sense that students take ownership and control of their learning and that I facilitate rather than lead. And ever since my PGCE days, I've always been comfortable with letting go of the learning and let it be student-led rather than teacher-led because some of the worst lessons I've ever taught over my career are when I make it teacher-led and I often struggle with that so student-led approach really works for me. Um, Mm. It's often problem-solved based with students working together and being physically active within PE lessons which is crucial because I'm not a fan of inactive passive participation for large chunks of a lesson and again i struggle when i move from active to passive i like flip learning Um, i think it's really important as a as an approach to help make better connections to learning so for example you know the last few years i've asked key stage three students as part of their independent study to complete ascending and receiving practice linked to transferable techniques and skills like a chess pass or a bounce pass with a any type of ball, football, softball, whatever they've got in preparation for our following basketball lesson Um, and sharing resources like YouTube shorts or videos of practices to try as well in order to make better connections. And uh, I I work tirelessly to make assessment meaningful to every lesson. uh, As I I discussed in a minute. Sorry, Gary, do you you think that's um, an underused pedagogy in, in physical education? across the board, that, that flip learning, the, 
the tasks to do at home that contribute to learning in the lesson? I think um, in key stage four, like academic, PE and A-level, which I've taught for many years, it's been embedded, but I think it's probably underutilized at key stage three, but it can be really powerful. And when we mm. take TGFU as a model, for example, and tactical games, um, you know, we, we often take the skill element out of the game and put it back in. It can make better connections um, and can make lessons flow. And it's where students can then have that flip learning task, yeah. go away and practice, assess their learning, come back to the lesson and work on it some more with some students. But um, rather than starting again, which is a, a common theme through year seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, in terms of, you know, those transferable skills. So I, mm. I think it's something that I'd certainly recommend. And it's something I'm working yeah. with students here at Edinburgh about those transferable mm. skills and using out of lesson context to to get students to to buy into it. But yeah. yeah um, great. You also mentioned um, you also mentioned the your approach to allowing students to have ownership of their lessons and, and giving them responsibility now had a conversation with Grace Cardiff this morning about meaningful physical education and, and democratic practices and, um, and reflective pedagogy, which is almost like a similar sort of message of allowing the children to have a say and, and giving them that ownership. Um, it's quite tricky, isn't it, for, for someone who's recently qualified at an ECT, who's maybe mm -hmm. still finding their identity as a PE teacher to um, maybe let go of that control, particularly when looking to build relationships or, you know, set high expectations and standards of, of behavior. It's, you know, it, it can feel quite, um, there can be some tensions with letting go of that control and, and, you know, responding to the students' reactions. Um, so I guess it's a kind of bit of a leap of faith when you first start, but perhaps something that comes a little bit easier with time. Yes, I agree. Yes. Um, and I, I know colleagues that, you know, struggled to let go of that learning even a little bit, whereas others uh, are happy mm. to do so. And it's it's about finding a happy medium and uh, experimenting mm. as well. And and using, I often use a lot of my PGC practice to eventually let go of the reins a little bit more and more and as I get more comfortable. But um, it's certainly worth, and student-led mm. learning is really important, I think, in order to, to engage and keep them active. And uh, it's just about experimenting and, and seeing what, early career teachers or they're happy with and, and what they're not happy with yeah so you, you would is that so you you've almost kind of in a nutshell described the, the pedagogies that you you have used as a teacher and that you encourage your trainees at um at edinburgh to use um what about your your research then what have you what have you found from your research and how's that impacting your practice Okay, so uh, my PhD achieving mastery and evolved grounded theory of key stage three lead learners' views on feedback and assessment focuses on how students self-manage their responses to feedback over a three-year period while studying subjects across key stage three. So, for example, math, English, science, drama, PE, etc., etc., uh, within mm -hmm. key stage three. So that is a curriculum stage for pupils aged 11 to 14 years starting with year seven followed by years eight and nine for those not so familiar with the english education context but central to developing the evolved grounded theory 
was the lead learners' roles as co-researchers, a term that often varies and is misunderstood in practice, but essentially where research participants are involved throughout the study, for example, helping to collect data and analyse it with the researcher or researchers. And it was vital in this study because creating an original grounded theory would have been difficult, from my perspective at least, without the lead learners sharing their voices and being part of the, of the work we did. So just for context, achieving mastery in my research referred to the highest level of achievement within Key Stage 3. And in our context, it went from emerging the lowest level of achievement to developing, followed by securing, and eventually to mastery the, the highest level. Mm -hmm. So before my doctoral study, limited research had looked into how English secondary school pupils perceived and used feedback, particularly those considered high achieving. So to address this sizable gap in the literature, my study aimed to examine 12 year seven lead learners. In our context, lead learners are those identified as high ability students. In other contexts, these students might be identified as gift and talented, for example. Okay. Yeah. Their views and experiences of assessment and feedback in Key Stage 3 within the secondary school where I worked as a full-time teacher. I suppose my interpretation of teacher as researcher in this study was carrying out this research and using the findings from it to improve my teaching practice. Mm. In other words, I was a teacher when facilitating discussions, interviews and analysing data with the lead learners and a teacher when using findings to develop student-centred approaches to feedback and assessment within, within my lessons. So yeah. having just outlined a little bit of context to my interpretation of my role as a, as a teacher researcher, I'll quickly discuss why I became a teacher as a researcher within this study. So, event, so with the constant chopping and changing of feedback and assessment descriptor grades across our school, I informally asked, I sort of questioned uh, a number of year seven to nine students about assessment and feedback in Key Stage 3. And I was generally surprised when they said things like, I don't understand it, or I don't know how to get to mastery. Hmm. At this point, I decided to reread the school's Key Stage 3 curriculum, assessment and feedback policies to gain a better understanding of some of the issues that negatively impact students' learning. And after a dozen or so further conversations with pupils, together with my concerns, I wanted to conduct this piece of research using a youth voice in conjunction with a co-participatory kind of framework to truly capture what was happening with assessment and feedback, and most importantly to me, why from the students' perspectives. Mm -hmm. This eventually led to the research question, which was how did Key Stage 3 lead learner pupils in a secondary school engage with feedback and assessment criteria in their quest to reach the highest standard of achievement in this key stage? And importantly, this was collaboratively done between myself and the lead learners it wasn't a question which I decided to to go with so we conducted countless informal conversations together with 
approximately 50 unstructured and semi-structured interviews between March 2018 and July 2020, which the lead learners sometimes led themselves and I was present to facilitate when necessary. We made use of techniques and procedures specific to Corbin and Strauss's evolved ground of theory, such as theoretical sampling, memo writing, and the constant comparison method. And they were used, and these techniques and procedures facilitated the, the identification and development of concepts in conjunction with bringing context and process into the analysis that, that lead learners contributed to. So, so for example, we align the conditions, the actions and interactions and consequences of what they were saying and doing and choosing quotations that they felt were important to them to help me narrate the storyline of how they managed to self-manage their response to feedback. Um, and by carefully integrating these categories, a substantive grounded theory emerged. And substantive means that in this context specific and hopefully is transferable, enabling other school contexts with comparable characteristics, i.e. those that have high achievers, um, looking at assessment and feedback to appreciate what was actually happening. Mm -hmm. So the title of my PhD, Achieving Mastery, now that is the core category. So that is the aim of what lead learners were trying to do. They were trying to achieve mastery in everything that they did, successful or not. And the second part, how lead learners self-manage their response to feedback, well, that describes the major uh, process. And that was their attempt to achieve their goal, which was to, uh, to achieve mastery. And that was collaboratively formed with myself and, and the lead learners. And, and branching off this major process of how lead learners self-manage their response to feedback, there are five interconnected sub-processes, including mastery networking. And that is in short where lead learners took their feedback to their teachers and all their peers to gain mastery assessment knowledge. Challenging feedback where lead learners challenge teacher and or peer feedback comments to clarify what they need to do in order to achieve mastery. Making use of resources, that is, engage with learning materials such as exercise books, online resources, textbooks, exemplar work, to see what the mastery bigger picture was. Carrying out mastery research, so that is using things like personal learning checks, which identifies what students need to do to achieve mastery assessment feedback comments and their exercise book or independent work to see what the mastery assessment criteria was. And finally, assessing how to respond to their feedback. So whether they wanted to enter an ongoing reflective cycle of student teacher peer feedback or, and it was sad to hear this from the lead learners, because often there was an unwillingness to respond directly to feedback. You know, particularly teachers' feedback sometimes. To the teacher, yeah. Okay. So instead, they they made use of alternative options like networking with their peers outside the classroom, away from the teacher, uh, before coming back potentially into um, the major process of using things such as challenging feedback, making use of resources, 
And these five interconnected sub-processes are, are what the students did, the lead learners did to self-manage. Um, they kind of, they're interconnected because they didn't necessarily do one of the five. They may have done four of the five, three of the five, you know, helping them their own way of managing it and learning how they, you know, responded to feedback was fascinating because, you know, it gave me in my role as teacher's researcher, the findings taught me many things and made me reflect in depth on my, my practice. And a great example was at the time, you know, in my year eight Bampton lessons, I remember this quite vividly. Um, so for every student, not just the lead learners who I taught, which was probably two or three of the, the research sample, you know, to self-manage their response to feedback through teacher, peer, or even self-feedback by carefully scaffolding optional, almost like circuit-like tra uh, training stations, so um, which is student-led. So for example, I'd have a circuit that was like a peer group feedback station circuit. So they could go over and discuss in peer groups. I'd have an optional station um, in the corner of the sports hall for working with high achieving mastery students to receive additional feedback. Um, and a station using you know, iPads to observe myself or a high performer demonstrate the game-based and tactical mastery assessment mm -hmm. criteria and why doing X, Y, and Z, and so on, differentiates from securing, developing, and emerging. So this was kind of to improve right. their feedback literacy. In, in addition was to that in every lesson? Well, it was... Was that in every lesson? Gary? I would start to embed it. As soon as I realized what was going on, I would then start to embed this in every lesson. Um, okay. And how long would you spend on, on that, that sort of feedback circuit that you described? Well, it was optional. So we could, you know, I might spend 10 minutes, you know, um, mm -hmm. and it would be physically active because, for example, I could be observing you in gameplay, looking at the assessment criteria, um, peer assessing you, and then there could be a discussion inside the badminton court where we would agree or perhaps disagree. And okay. I could then eavesdrop and then give feedback myself. Uh, but it was the way they wanted to respond to their feedback and giving them time. Some, some students wanted a bit more time than others. So creating opportunities whilst being in a physically active PE lesson. It was challenging to begin with, but again, it's, it's letting go and not giving a structured 15 minutes in the middle of a lesson. It was about having those options and having the criteria um, on the iPad so they were at the side of the court and being able to video if they wanted to respond in that way, if they wanted to go across to the board and look at the assessment criteria. So there was definitely a degree of flexibility and mm. it allowed them to give constructive, meaningful feedback, which you know they grew in confidence with. And and one of the one of my favorite learning activities was asking the students to challenge my feedback and this was done in a calm non-confrontational manner you know to develop their own and others feedback literacy and i felt that over time particularly as they moved from year seven eight into nine um, this approach helped to improve their ability to give that meaningful feedback and it was great to mm -hmm. hear hear it and obviously you know observe it and I appreciate that 
that every not every teacher would enjoy being challenged in in this way but hmm. it was something that not only kept me on my toes in terms of my accuracy of my assessment and feedback decisions but it also like i said improved the quality of, of students feedback and it wasn't just yeah great or yes it was it was more subjective and it really started to critique their performance and how can i get better why is this important okay so there wasn't there was i'm assuming there were occasions where pupils or, or children would challenge the feedback you provided them because of misplaced confidence or self self-belief or yes. levels of self-confidence um, yeah. But you, you made sure that it was always attached to really clear criteria, and was, and was a conversation that was in a, you know, a, a firm, friendly, constructive sort of environment. Yes, and it, it did happen. It happened across um, year seven, eight, and nine. I felt that this challenge was mm. was constructive because it allows us, you know. And I may I've made one or two mistakes in the past of perhaps not placing in the right descriptor level, and it was it was a really good example of of just sharing mm. our feedback and then looking at it from a different lens and connecting teacher self peer feedback, you know, in in that cycle, um, and and using that that way of self managing their feedback to to go away, come back, and then perhaps challenge and and say yeah. I'm doing these things, sir. And then, you know, that that's reflective for me. And, uh, you know, even after 12 years of teaching, you, you don't always get assessment and feedback just right. And uh, but doing this definitely helps to build, you know, hmm. not only your assessment, you know, feedback literacy, but the students as well. And yeah. helping them to understand the criteria that they're being assessed against, I think is really important. And these and these strategies did did help in in these lessons. Um make those connections uh, a little bit better. So, so yeah, yeah I think it's great. Um, it was great over that three year period and they moved then. Mm -hmm. I think they, so they're, they're in the second year of uh, sixth form now, um, the students that I had in key stage three. So, you know, it was great to move up through the school with them. And even after I finished yeah. my PhD, they're moving into key stage four, you know, they, we still spent time and, you know, independent time working on their feedback literacy. So, it wasn't a case of stopping at the end of year nine and then that's it. It was it was built over five years. And when you get to teach a group of students that were part of your research for, you know, five years, it, it really is powerful. And uh, you can just see your reflective practice move from here to there and and um, and evolve. So it, it was great. It was great from my perspective. Yeah, powerful. Really powerful. So I'm, I'm interested in obviously your your study was based on lead learners so those that are you know showing confidence and competence and and moving towards higher end targets which is great was there any um disparity or similarities between the way other learners manage their feedback that you were aware of so in that class obviously you said there was a group of maybe two or three lead learners and you were using these feedback and assessment strategies that they were responding well to but was it the same for all learners in those groups that, that there was definitely there was definitely probably divided in the beginning um, in terms of you know working with lead learners as part of the research and then filtering it into lessons. But I quickly established that that this was quite powerful stuff, and you know I, I want to be able to involve every student, whether it's a lead learner or 
um, SEND students, for example, and there was a diverse range of confidence. So mm. it was almost like training the lead learners to then filter it across the class. So they often became experts within the lesson. And then eventually, mm. as I embedded this into my, you know, my teaching practice, and it, it took it took a long time to kind of tweak and evolve, and it continued to evolve. And uh, you know, some of the non-lead learners became very confident and just as articulate as perhaps the lead learners themselves. And mm. especially when, for example, I had a county badminton player who was a non-lead learner within the lesson, and he became the go-to. A student for feedback and you know technical practice mm. and working on them with skills and stuff as part of their way of self-managing the feedback I gave them and what he gave them so you know as we moved across yeah. different right. areas of the curriculum we had different experts lead learner non-lead learner but the the ability to observe and work with lead learners in the first instance was was powerful for the non-lead learners within the class and we then mm. embedded it as best practice within the class and um, not everyone was confident and it took a long time for those to have the confidence to interact with peers and give feedback uh, which was daunting for some of them but over yeah. time it became embedded so therefore it was it was happening you know across all lessons and you know mm. then the, the least confident ones were then able to to feedback you know and it was great to see and uh, it's great to see yeah, that progress yeah. over not just yeah. A block of work we're talking three years of yeah. helping them to become feedback literate and use their feedback and how they use it as well which is, was really important yeah i think the term feedback literacy is this strikes true and everything you've said there um i think it's i think it's really powerful um you've almost encouraged a, a climate uh, or a culture in your classroom where feedback is is a powerful thing we all know the importance of feedback in and moving forward um also the point around lead learners that from my experiences of um and correct me if i'm wrong but from when i've observed lessons those confident performers are often used as role models for demonstrating techniques or or demonstrating abilities and behaviors but not necessarily how to manage feedback and how to provide feedback um they're often given like coaching roles perhaps where they're told to improve an individual's technique or you know movement patterns but to actually use lead learners to develop that culture of, of feedback literacy is um is quite a unique approach and something that you know we should be maybe pushing for absolutely more often so in terms of in terms of what you've what you've gathered from your research what would you be encouraging PE teachers to do daily in their lessons um whether it's whether it's aligned to your research around assessment and feedback literacy or, or other things what would be your sort of if you're speaking to PE teachers that are going into classrooms today, tomorrow, what are you encouraging them to do um, in terms of best practice? Well, I think it ties in with, with my, my takeaway message. And it's, it's that, you know, young people are valuable stakeholders of NPE and education generally. And I encourage schools, teachers, PE teachers to work with them. For example, you know, adapting and modifying curriculum, extracurricular activities so they're more inclusive to engage everybody or make assessment and feedback more student friendly. So students can make you know, better connections to and between assessment criteria within PE and beyond. But 
Creating space for children and young co-researchers within lessons will give them greater control, involvement and ownership so they can bring new ideas to the table and, and possibly make changes to all aspects of PE. I'm certainly not mm. saying we should let children and young people make decisions and run PE departments within school, nor am I saying <laughs> we need to engage heavily with academic research, which, as, as you know, can be problematic in terms of logistical and ethical issues. But we can yeah. create opportunities as PE teachers and teachers generally to let children and young people speak on matters and you know that affect them and most importantly act on it unfortunately there seems to be a lot of hearing but not listening going on so little changes after adult stakeholders conduct you for student voice so empowering children and young people to take part in helping PE departments you know to find solutions to problems they encounter in their local context and help them make changes if necessary, I, I think it's really valuable. And from my perspective, there isn't much extending beyond student voice, i.e. they talk, you listen. Um, so I hope the findings and recommendations from my PhD will offer teachers, teacher educators, and the research community generally to, to really emphasize the co in co-researching. Um, and there's a paper I'm writing and putting the final touches to that discusses this in further detail, which I look forward to sharing in the future. And I also have uh, published a few British Education Research Association BIRA blogs relating to my PhD. Um, the first of which is pupils' perspectives on engaging with feedback and assessment in secondary school, followed by yeah. one that came out in June. Uh, developing key stage free assessment and feedback policy and practice recommendations for English secondary schools and teachers. So, you know, it's, it'll be great um, that if teachers engage and perhaps read those to um, to see some further ideas and recommendations of of what I did and and, and going from there. Brilliant. Thanks, Gary. That's a uh, really insightful. Um, it's. The, one of the main aims of my of my podcast or the, the idea behind the podcast is to make research accessible to those that are in practice, right? Because we often have, I often have conversations with trainee teachers that are um, wanting to read evidence and use evidence to inform their practice. But sometimes the accessibility of those papers are quite challenging. They're, you know, they take hours to read and sometimes require a thesaurus or they <laughs> often come knocking on my door and want definitions. Um, so what I think, and also for those that are busy teachers in the classroom that don't have time, I just want this podcast to be um, a, a platform for people to listen to conversations and have some key takeaways of what, you know, what research says, what things work and what things don't work, what the tensions are and what they can apply to their practice. And what you've mentioned today about uh, feedback literacy and some of the different techniques and pedagogical approaches you used in your classroom whilst you were teaching alongside your research uh, are really powerful. Um, the, the use of lead learners to, to role model those positive behaviours and to, to improve that culture of, of positive feedback, but also to encourage the children to challenge that feedback as well is, is a really nice sort of notion. Um, and your piece on, on uh, 
on co-construction and co-research and the importance of student voice. Um, I've had two conversations so far with yourself and with Grace, who was talking about meaningful PE earlier, where you know the voice is is massive in the the democratic ped- the guiding pedagogies of meaningful PE. So there's a lot of this this sort of notion coming through at the minute where students' voice and and choice and co-construction and working with um, can be really powerful. I think what we just need more of is examples of how to do it, and and what you've provided today is is some of those so so thank you for for sharing that um i really appreciate you taking the time to, to jump on um and uh hopefully once the other papers have been released more than welcome to come on again and share your findings of of other work that you continue to do absolutely well well thank you nathan for inviting me on your new podcast today and for all the hard work you do at the margins i've been following your work for a few years now and have learned and continue to learn from you um so keep up the fantastic work you do and uh i'll promise to promote your podcast and i wish you all the best with it and i hope you know you succeed as long as i didn't bore you or the listeners uh today um i would love to return at some point in the future to chat and um and yeah we'll we'll go from there excellent right thank you very much gary Top pleasure work. thank you nathan